I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Amos chapter 4, 6 through 9. Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm your host, Zelwyn Heidi, here today with David Apple to continue our series on the book of Revelation. David, how are you doing? Doing great, Zelwyn. Good to be back on with you. Yeah, it's been a little bit since we've had you on last, but that's just kind of the way it goes around here. How's the weather out in Kentucky? Uh, in Kentucky, it's pretty great. It rains every 30 minutes. Then it then the sun comes out, then it rains again, which is really good for the garden. We've had uh, all of our kind of the initial harvest has begun to come in anyways. Even my broccoli is almost ready to come in. Lettuce, all that good stuff. The beans are growing, the peas are growing. So garden's looking good. Weather's doing good for that. Good. Yeah. Now the weather has been a little wild up here and you, and you, maybe you know something about that too, but we have had like a hundred degree plus days for several days in a row, followed by intense rain here. Like last night, I think it was even breaking some trees with the storm that blew through. So when you live up here in North Dakota, things are either zero or a hundred. I mean, there's really no in between. That's the way you, you are an extreme guy, you know, and I can see how the land shaped you. You came up out of the ground and it, it made you that way. I was out in your, on the high prairie. Do you call it the prairie up there? Yeah. Or is it the step? Okay. So I was, I was in your neck of the woods anyways, um, but in South Dakota, Western South Dakota and saw many fascinating things. I saw many Buffalo Custer State Park. Highly recommend going to Custer. You know, with a name like that, it's going to be a good place. And uh, the the buffalo were, they're pretty tame out there, actually, Zoe. they'll come up to the car and lick the car. Sure. So they're, they're a very mild-mannered creature. And But I was certainly, um, you know, inspired to think of you. <laughs> well, that's just the way it goes. And did you see the greatest natural formation in the world, Mount Rushmore? I did, yes, yes. I saw Teddy Roosevelt there, tucked away, and I thought, how come he doesn't just have his own mountain? <laughs> Truth. Truth there. I was told that it, it's going to, how long, the at the museum at the bottom of the hill, they tell you how long it's going to last, and it's something like 500,000 years it's going to still yeah. remain. So I think it's, I think it's going to be like that for a good, a good long while. Until it gets canceled or something, but yeah. Well, Cust- I keep calling it Custer, but um, Crazy Horse continues to go unfinished. Which <laughs> maybe we shouldn't speak of such things. Yeah, I would say we might just want to let that one go because yeah. that's that's been an un- in an unfinished state for I think well over a decade now. So yes, I think you're right. But anyway, getting down to the, um, our topic at hand, then. So we're talking about the book of Revelation, and last time you and Willie were talking about it, you kind of left off talking about what exactly? We got through the the seals. So um, if I can kind of remind our listeners and you too, Zell and me and you, of kind of where we've been in the book, I think it's helpful because we've mentioned this a number of times, but the, the general story of the book is important in st- so that you don't just zoom in on, you know, one aspect. So like, you know, you want to talk about the locusts and are these Apache helicopters? Is this talking about the Vietnam crisis or what's going on? <laughs> if you do that, you miss the whole purpose of the book, which is not to terrify, um, but to actually say the lamb is on the throne and he's bringing his heavenly kingdom to earth and bringing earth up to heaven. So just as a a way of kind of getting the ball rolling here, remember how John begins to see things after the letters he sees into heaven and he sees the ascension of Jesus, right? He sees the lamb coming to the throne and receiving a scroll. 
And that scroll is going to come back in later. But what he sees at first is the opening up of the scroll. And as the lamb opens the scroll, um, you have all of the seals being broken open. And as the seals are broken open, there's a bunch of, well, this is a technical word, but there's a bunch of bad stuff that happens. And the, the result of all of those seals is being broken is that the people on earth cry out, who can stand before the lamb and his wrath? So they're experiencing the, there is uh, wrath that comes out as the lamb sits on the throne. Um, it's not just everybody gets along right away. There is a conflict between the kingdom of the lamb and the kingdoms uh, of mankind what we would call the kingdom of faith versus the kingdom of unbelief or the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the devil. These things are going to be in conflict the rest of the book. And what Revelation is uh, doing, what John is seeing, is how the Lamb's kingdom is going to come on earth. And after the seals, after he sees all the seals opened, he's going to see the next kind of progression, which is in some ways a repetition. Uh, but it's also going to advance things. And he sees again, this te- the, what I'm going to call a technical term, he sees bad stuff happening. Um, <laughs> and so what we're going to talk about today is all this bad stuff that happens as the angels blow their trumpets. I don't and And again, the purpose here is seeing this is one side, I guess, of the Lamb's kingdom. When Jesus takes the throne, and he brings his kingdom to earth, that means that every knee on earth is going to have to bow to him. And so we started this, the episode I read from Amos, there are times where God will use what we would call natural disasters or these terrible things that that we experience. And the purpose is to bring people to repentance, but um, it doesn't always quote unquote work. So sometimes things get worse and worse and worse. Men harden themselves against the Lord. Right. Well, I think especially as the book goes along, you're going to see that happening where they might be crying out how long right now or, you know, hide us kind of thing. But later it's going to explicitly say they did not repent of their evil. You know, that they just kept doing what they were doing. The evil became more evil still. So I, I think it is important to draw that out that, Christ being set on the throne is going to bring with it the the subjugation of all earthly powers, which is what kind of what you're getting at here, David, that when he is the one in power, that he is the one who is reigning over all things, all things must be put under his feet. And sometimes that's going to happen violently, right? Yeah, there are there are disasters and there are terrifying things that happen. And you know, what is the, how is that a comforting message? Well, it's comforting in, in only in light of the lamb still being on the throne. And that's why I want to start here with that is to say, um, before you get to the trumpets, you have to remember all of this is happening because the lamb is on the throne and his kingdom is coming to earth. So, and that's where the book ends. So always remembering the starting point and the ending point helps you to see that even while all this awful stuff is happening, the tribulations, the persecutions, and the disasters that happen, none of it happens outside of his permission, right? Um, right. He, he sets a limit to these things. And one of the, one of the things that we're going to see here is that it's the revelation of his um, wrath, the pouring out of his wrath, does not convert the nations. But we probably won't get to this. What does convert them is the witness of of his church. Yeah, an excellent and, point. Yeah, and so you have what we're going to talk about today is is kind of all the stuff that happens that doesn't lead people to repentance, and that's really setting the scene for the the second part, which is well, then what do, what is going to quote unquote work? Sure, sure. All right, so diving into our text then. So we're coming out of the the cycle of the seven seals, right? The seven seals which were being broken off off of the the scroll which was given to the Lamb as he sat upon the throne. Now we're beginning a new cycle of seven, which is the seven trumpets. So what is the significance of a trumpet here? 
Uh, why, you know, is there a biblical precedent to this? You know, where, why a trumpet? What is, what does that have to do with anything here? Yeah. I mean, I think you could, you could sort of intuitively get this. Trumpets are loud. Tr- mm-hmm. The trumpet call is the clear call. So I think that it, that it's just kind of intuitively grasped. But when you look back in the Old Testament, you do find, okay, where do we, where do we get this? Where were trumpets used in Israel? That's always, when you're reading the book of Revelation, you want to start with Old Testament um, background before you get into kind of some of the apocalyptic literature, which really is that in between the Testament stuff. So if you look back into uh, numbers, you find the command by God for um, how trumpets are to be used in Israel. This is in Numbers, I believe it's chapter 10. And there's kind of two purposes for blowing the trumpets, which I think the Hebrew word is the shofar, right? If you've ever seen the shofar. So we're not talking about, you know, the modern trumpet. We're talking about in ancient, (laughs) uh, in ancient kind of thing. And the two purposes in Numbers are one, to call the people to assembly. Okay, so... If you you get this in the book of Joel, consecrate a fast, blow the trumpets, right? Call, gather the people together for some kind of solemn, sacred purpose, worship assembly. The other use of the trumpet is for, um, as the people are going through the wilderness, the trumpet is used to to get them to journey on. So when it's time to move from one camp to the next camp, someone blows a trumpet and that's the signal. It's the signal for um, progress. It's the signal for movement. Okay. The other one that I that I think is probably in, in my reading of Revelation here is the most important. The trumpets were also blown as part of the sacrifices of Israel. And the, the rationale given in numbers is so that the Lord as the people hear the trumpets, as the sacrifices are being offered, they are they are to remember that the Lord remembers them. So it's kind of a signal. God hears your prayers. God receives your sacrifices. He, um, he has not forgotten you. And the reason that I think that that's probably in the background here is because the immediately preceding the trumpets is this uh, scene where all this incense is going up to God, right? At the beginning of chapter eight, you have the prayers of the saints ascending up into heaven and then his god's response is to show john the trumpets blowing okay so Mm -hmm. as all this stuff is happening here is god's response to his people's prayers okay and that again helps us to see okay this this stuff is not uh, all these bad things that are happening are not you know just random occurrences but god is accomplishing his purposes the lamb is remembering his people. And even though uh, this is terrifying stuff, he has his, he has his purposes for all of it. No, I, I think that's an excellent point. I think it really does drive home and connect it with the previous section, which again, I think is a tendency we sometimes have with the book of Revelation to take like this section and consider it all by itself and without any connection to anything else. So to see it even as a response to what God is doing, I think is a very helpful thing. Although that, that first one, I know you're, you're kind of partial to one you were just going after there, but that first one that you were suggesting, I think is, is also interesting because to it, this idea that the trumpet is a call, not only to say, you know, God is with his people, but a call to come out, you know, to let's go, you know, let's move kind of a thing. It's time to leave. So you can sure. see in, in both of those things, you know, that God is with us, but we're not in this world. We're looking forward to something else. You know, because you get that message in Revelation going on further, too, where it says, you know, come out of her, my people, lest you partake of her sins when with the fall of Babylon and stuff like that. So this this call to leave the world and to come to God, even while God is saying, I am with you and this is my response to your prayers. I think I, I don't think you have to see those in opposition to each other. I think they both can be going on at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. The other the other connection that I think is helpful here. Remember the prayer that went up in in chapter eight, you don't hear what the prayers are that are ascending up to God in the smoke of the Mm -hmm. incense. It's only I think it's back in chapter six where you have the martyrs calling out from under the altar of incense. You actually hear what their prayer is and their prayer is how long, O Lord, how long until you vindicate us? 
Okay. And so if you, if you keep that in mind, the, the concern is how long and how, right? How long must we wait? And how are you going to vindicate the saints? I, I remember talking with Willie about this. The vindication, of course, is going to ultimately come at the end. But God also does vindicate his people along the way. And so one of the ways that he's going to vindicate his people is by, you know, by the punishments that are given to those who oppose him. Um, God is patient, he's merciful, he's long-suffering, but he does bring things to an end, right? He doesn't wink at sin. And so eventually, those who oppose him are going to be um, put in subjection to him. And it's not going to be like a, uh, it's not always going to be a peaceful, happy, oh, we were wrong, God was right, and we we love and worship him now. <laughs> would you Would you see here, uh, not only a call of comfort for the saints, but also like a call to repentance. I mean, are these are these trumpet blasts meant solely against the enemies of the church, or are they meant to also call us to be, you know, to repent of our sins, to turn away from things? And I guess the reason I ask is because do we want to see this as, you know, like with the, the 10 plagues, do you want to see this as like the first cycle of plagues where everybody is suffering? Or do we want to see this as like the later cycles where it becomes more and more of the world that is suffering that becomes Egypt? You know, which can we make that distinction or is this or does it matter? No, I think it matters because you want to know, am, am I going to experience this stuff too? Right. <laughs> and I think that the answer is that the church, the even the faithful do experience these things. Okay. So, and, and this will especially come out as we go through the, what happens with the trumpets, um, especially the first four, there's no limitation to who is experiencing these things. It's over, you know, a third of the earth, but it's affecting, it's, it's affecting everyone. Sure. And so there is no, there's not a, a separation like there was in Egypt where God's people are in Goshen. The, is, the ancient Hebrews are in Goshen and the Egyptians are the only ones that are getting the brunt of the plagues. Um, I would, I think that it's, this is going to affect everyone to some degree. Okay. So, yeah. So when, so when we're going through and talking about the trumpets and we'll start doing that probably after the break here, but you know, we want to look at the details and, and maybe talk about, you know, what it is exactly that is happening with each of these trumpets, you know, why this is a response to what's going on. And we'll also talk about the connections that we see to the previous things, especially with the seals. But yeah, this is something that is, is meant to call us out of the world. It is something that is meant to, you know, you know, call us to war. It is something that is meant to call us and say, you know, God is with us, even in the midst of all of these things. And I think that's where we can see the the great comfort of the the book of Revelation, even in its, as you say, technically the bad parts, right? Yeah, and uh, you can see that uh, you know we're not just importing that I, that these things are meant to bring people to repentance. If you look at the after the sixth trumpet gets blown, mm-hmm. and uh, I think you're right, we're probably just going to end up talking about the details because they're it's fascinating stuff, and there's so many details, but. Right. John reports that despite all of this, the rest of mankind, here's what it says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And so why would he mention that except for I think the purpose is to to connect what happens in the trumpets is supposed to call people to repentance, but they do not listen, right? That's, again, why we started with Amos. And so the revelation of God's wrath does not actually convert the hearts of, uh, of the people. They harden themselves even further. Sure. And we'll talk about that in more detail after the break. Please stick around. This is Word Fitly Spoken. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. 
Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more WordFitly Spoken. You are listening to Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Zoe Heidi here with David Appold, continuing our discussion of the book of Revelation. So, David, we left off kind of setting up the scene for the seven trumpets and talking about what they might signify. So I think maybe it's best now if we jump in and start talking about the trumpets themselves. So do you want to start us off? Yeah, let me give you the here's what happens each time. An angel blows a trumpet and some devastation happens. Okay, and as we're going to go through the, there is there's seven total trumpets, um, and only the last one doesn't follow that pattern, which we won't. We're only going to do the first six today, but there within that general pattern of trumpet being blown, then some devastation happening. There is a kind of a, a little division. The first four trumpets are very similar to each other, and then the last three trumpets are are kind of a separate. They're not a totally separate thing, but they're of a different kind. And that's very much like the seals. So the four horsemen are are what comes out of the first four seals. And those four horsemen, you know, you have the pale rider and the, the one riding a, a fiery red horse and the one riding a white horse, all those things. You have that pattern of four and three repeated also in the trumpets. And I think it's good to bring out these similarities so that you see why it is that people say the book is cyclical, okay? And this is one of the things that people point to and say, look, the same kind of four, then three pattern happened with the seals and happened again with the trumpets. Another one of those similarities is that between the sixth and the seventh, so between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, you have a little interruption of either the seals being opened or the trumpets being opened. And it's in that interruption in the time when these things are interrupted, where you have a different sort of thing happening. So between the sixth and seventh seal is where you have, instead of destruction, you have the um, sealing of God's people on their foreheads, and then the vision of the, the saints coming out of the tribulation. Between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, you have, instead of some devastation coming on the earth, you actually have the the witnesses, the two witnesses that God sends into the world. And it's those two witnesses who actually um, bring pe- some people to repentance. And, and I, I just want to emphasize that so that you can see um, how the seals and the trumpets are similar, but also how um, what happened in the seals progresses with what happens in the trumpets. Okay, so in in the case of um, what we're going to see in a minute here, the seals affected a, a fourth of the earth, and the trumpets are going to affect a third of the earth. So, okay, this is getting a little bit more intense. Okay, mm-hmm. um, and you can also see the same thing happen in the um, interruption period between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. You have the angels marking people on their foreheads. Okay, so mm-hmm. the that. Um, salvific work that takes place. Well, between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, you have a a little bit more of, uh, you get a further picture of what the salvific work of the lamb and his kingdom is like. And it includes now not just angels doing things, but it includes the witnessing of um, these two prophets who, you know, that's its own episode, right? That's its own show. What's going on with with the two prophets? Yeah, we we haven't got quite that far yet. We probably won't get that far. So, but I, I I do think it's also as you point out there that 
we have the progression of this, which shows that it's not purely cyclical. Uh, sometimes you hear that argument made that this is just kind of, you know, done over again. But the fact that there is that, you know, fourth to a third to what will eventually be with the bulls complete and utter, there is a progression to these cycles that shows that maybe there is a progression to what is happening. So well, while we can make a comparison between like individual seals and individual trumpets, for example, and we can see some similarities to them, I don't think we want to identify them as just, you know, the same thing, just in different words. You know, this there is a progression to it that we do see going on throughout the book. Yeah, and I think that's that's part of the reason why people want to view Revelation as kind of a timeline. And so they like people like to look at the book and say, where are we? Are we in the are we in the time of the seals? Are we in the time of the trumpets? Are we in the right. time of the bulls? And and people want to identify the things that happen in Revelation with contemporary events. So the locusts are those helicopters. We already made that joke, right? <laughs> people do that because there is this sense like, okay, this is describing things that happen um, right. within within our time and history. Okay. And there's something valid to that, but it is also at the same time, I think it's a mistake to say, okay, we've already had, you know, the first trumpet and we're in the time of the fifth trumpet or so. I don't think you can be that specific with these things. So you don't think that, I forget which one it was, it might have even been the sixth trumpet is like a nuclear bomb or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. We're not talking about the Cold War and uh, the, the the bringing down of the, you know, Mikhail Gorbachev and uh, Ronald Reagan are not the two, they're not the tr- two witnesses. Well, I mean, Hal Lindsey might argue with you. I mean, <laughs> Gog and Magog being Russia. I mean, that's, that's yeah. some pretty compelling stuff, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> but we, we haven't even gotten as far as Russia in our study of Revelation, as it were. So anyway... So let's look at the first trumpet then. So let's, I'll take this first one and then we'll kind of talk about it. So yeah, go. Uh, this is chapter eight, verse seven. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. So what's going on here, David? I mean, what, what is, what is happening with this trumpet? You know, what is God proclaiming here as 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 we see as we yeah. hear this trumpet there it's a plague right um this is reminiscent of down in egypt the hail that came and struck struck down all kinds of stuff but it's worse than that because there's both hail and fire and um then there's also blood mixed in and i think what what we're going to see as we go through these first four p- trumpets especially is that the revelation of these, you know, disasters is going to affect the different parts of creation. Okay. So the first part is the land. There's going to be something that happens and the land that is meant to be fruitful and to bring forth all kinds of good things, green grass for the animals and for man to also benefit from. Um, It's going to be, um, this is now going to be cursed. This is part of the curse that comes because of sin, there's not going to be just green grass. You're going to get, it's going to get scorched up. I do want to point out though, that with Exodus and the the seventh plague, the plague of hail, there was fire mixed in with the hail, even in Exodus. So I think, but I think what makes it worse in this case is that it is mixed with blood for one thing. Yeah. That is that certainly intensifies it, but also that this hail, in a sense, is thrown over you know all of the earth, even though it affects you know finally destroys only a third of it. So whereas you know the original plague in Exodus affects only Egypt, this is something that is much more worldwide in scope. Yeah, right? definitely, definitely. There's um, a third of everything, right? It's not just a third of Egypt. Um, there, this is um, universal. It's going to it's going to touch everywhere. And so this goes back, you know, you asked in the first segment, is this just God's wrath against the unbelievers of the world? No, we're talking kind of a cosmic scope here. This Mm -hmm. is going to affect everyone, Mm -hmm. Um, even as, you know, in the Old Testament, when God um, deals with Israel, 
um, you have a mixed church in Israel, right? So um, it's not all faithful or all unfaithful all the time. It's always a mixed, a corpus mixed them. And so when um, God reveals, you know, his wrath by sending Nebuchadnezzar, well, that is going to affect both faith, faithful Israelites and also the unfaithful ones. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, is there, I mean, can we draw a more specific connection with this? I mean, I know you said it might be something more economic, but I mean, is there something that we can see this affecting a little bit more specifically? I mean, I'm not saying like an event in history where we can pinpoint it. That's not what I'm saying here. But, you know, just how do we see this at work in our own context? Well, I think you you can see this. I mean, I was just driving through South Dakota up by you and you can see the effect of a, a scorched up world. Um, you can see what uh, you can see the both the beauty of, you know, the plains and the prairies, but you can also see how vulnerable how vulnerable we are to any kind of disaster, right? So for all of our technical progress and advancement, you can you can dig the irrigation ditches, but um, you're still depending on the rain to come right. for, for those ditches to fill up. And so even though we have amazing technology, like at the end of the day, we are still reliant on a thin layer of soil and sunshine and rain. And when those things, when one of those things gets disrupted, all of a sudden we realize, you know, we're not, (laughs) we can't simply make our own food. It has to come from God. Right. No, I I think that's an excellent point because, you know, when we see the earth being burned up, maybe sometimes literally uh, being burned up, we do see a a sense in which God is calling us to say, you know, you know, pay attention to me, turn back to me, that famous kind of language. You know, I sent, I sent rain on one city and no rain on another, yet you did not return to me. You know, so there is this call to repentance that comes with it, which of course mankind is not listening to because they're invariably going to say, well, it's either just natural or it's, you know, it's something that uh, we can fix somehow that, you know, we can overcome these things. So, I, I do think that, you know, God calling to us, even through these seemingly, you know, like droughts and those sorts of things, you know, is a way of saying, you know, come back to me so that you can see how much you need me. But yeah, they don't, I, they don't want to listen. I think you're right. We we think that we can handle whatever problem comes. There's going to be a solution for it. Right. Right. Um, that's this is the you know, this is the trap of man's arrogance is that we we are very creative and there are amazing solutions that have come up but at the end of the day there is no you you are not going to manufacture utopia right? you're not going to invent what you know you're not going to invent god you can't you can't become god i do think that there is also as as strange as this may sound to us, some comfort in the fact that there it's only at this point a third of the earth which is destroyed, uh, because there is a limit even in the midst of God's wrath to what He's going to destroy. You know, so like up here in the north, for example, where we're kind of struggling with the effects of drought, you know, we we might be sorely tempted to think that this drought is just going to go on forever. That you know, it's something that. Will we ever make it out of it kind of a thing? But there's a recognition that, yes, I mean, God sets a limit to these things, even as he's calling us to repentance. So at this point, at least in the progression, he's not willing to to bring about the complete destruction of mankind. Yeah, I think you're right. Permission, God permits, but he sets um, he sets a limit to these mm-hmm. things. Yep. So do you have any other thoughts about the first trumpet no. or do we want to go to the second? Yeah, let's go. Let's go on. Okay, so. Verse 8, the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So now we have the sea being affected, whereas before we had the land being affected. And, uh, of course, the the image I think people are probably wondering the most about here is is what's the deal with the mountain? You know, why, why a burning mountain thrown into the sea? It, yeah, this is where now I I don't know exactly where we came down on dinosaurs, but isn't this um, describing a comet? That it sounds like a comet. I, I'm jo- only half joking. It sounds like um, a burning 
you know, a burning rock is falling into the sea. And when that happens, then again, I think it's, this is why it's valuable to see the symbolic as it's apocalyptic literature. And so you want to remember that as you read these things, yes, John saw just what he describes. He's not struggling to come up with the words, but um, it's apocalyptic so that we're not saying, oh, this is a comet that falls into the sea. Every time we see a comet, that's, you know, Revelation chapter eight, this is the second trumpet. Um, mm-hmm. The I think the significance is more important, which is that the sea, there is, there's no realm of creation that we can go to, um, to escape these things. It's going to come to every, first the land, then the sea, and eventually it's going to touch even the the sky, right? It's kind of like, um, which psalm is it that says, um, where shall I go to flee from God? If I ascend to the heavens, he's there. If I go into the the waters, he's there. Um, right. There's no, right. there is no escaping it. Right. Well, and yeah, and so, and especially because like in the previous one where you had people trying to hide under the mountains, you know, fall on us and cover us for the day of the Lamb's wrath has come. There, Like you say, there is nowhere in creation that will ultimately be able to get away from this. And I do think that it is an, important here too that, you know, the, the turning into blood, for example, or at least part of it turning into blood is again reminiscent of the plagues of Egypt. You know, that this plague which is falling upon the earth is recalling what God did as a way of, you know, breaking the heart of Pharaoh so that he would let his people go. So in a sense, we have the the greater Egypt, if you want to say that, the the, the symbolically Egypt. In fact, you get that language in yeah. chapter 11 being affected by the same plagues, only worse. Yeah, and why, why did God... One of the reasons given for the plagues is to show the Lord's power over the idols. I will execute judgments on Pharaoh and Egypt. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that's a good connection to bring out here. God is not simply angry. And so he says, I'm going to punish the people of the of earth. Um, he is showing his authority over the powers of the sea, right? Whatever um, kind of idols or or things that might be worshipped that come up out of the sea are here revealed to be of no help. Yeah. Well, and it's also with the, the language of the ships being destroyed, you know, the commerce of mankind. You also have the language in Ezekiel with like Sire and Titan, where they are, you know, sacrificing to their dragnets, you know, the, the worshipping of the, the commerce of mankind, you know, the idols therein. So, I mean, I think you could see that here as well that by the destruction of some of the ships, for example, you have God basically saying, I am greater than your idols because Lord knows we make an idol out of our economy. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's perfect with the ships. Um, Tyre and Sidon are praised for, um, you know, being these exceedingly wealthy cities who were mm-hmm. masters of, they were merchants of the sea. And uh, the sea merchants are having their ships destroyed here, you know, that you can't, you know, you're not going to find salvation in economic terms. Right. Any other thoughts on the second one? If we keep it this right, we aren't going to get through even six of them. So. Yeah, well, let's go because we got to get to the locusts in the next in the next segment. <laughs> well, we'll at least get through the next next trumpet here. So uh, verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the stars became Wormwood, and many people. Di- a third of the waters became wor- Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Okay. Yeah, nothing <laughs> to say here. Yeah, nothing at all. Very straightforward. <laughs> okay, so the the star falling out. We're going to see this again, um, not in the next trumpet, but in the fifth trumpet. Okay, and I think it's worth pointing out, um, you know, if our listeners are familiar with C.S. Lewis, you think of Wormwood as a demon. Okay. And I think that a fallen star with a name would kind of obviously make you think of some kind of demonic power. Um, But that will come out in the fifth trumpet. I don't think that what's described here, even though this star is given a name, Wormwood, I don't take this to be a demonic entity, a personal agent. I think okay. it's very similar to what just happened in the second 
trumpet, something falls out of heaven and strikes the some part of the earth. Here it's the waters, and it renders them, instead of being life-giving waters, now they're poisonous or bitter waters. And so the, the name Wormwood, why is the star given a name? Well, Wormwood simply means bitter. And so it is a bitter plant. It's a bitter star that now is going to make the waters bitter. Yeah, I'm going to have to tell Willie that you're interpreting Revelation through C.S. Lewis, but... No, I'm saying it's not. <laughs> Wormwood, in, in C.S. Lewis's book, Wormwood is a demon. In the book of Revelation, Wormwood is just a name given to a star. It's not a personal <laughs> agent. Right, right. Well, and I think you could also point out that, you know, God gives the names to all of the stars, and maybe this one in particular was given, and that was its name. You know, but for the fact that it is falling on the earth at God's command and uh, making the waters bitter so that the people who drink this water, I mean, they become sick and they even die. You know, so you do have this sense in which, you know, again, the mankind is affected so that there is no place which they could go. I mean, I suppose you could say and draw into the, the picture here like uh, Meribah in its various forms. Yeah. They could not drink of the water, and God made and purified it for them. Uh, you could think of Elijah, or is it Elisha, doing the same thing when he sweetens the waters. You know, so God, in other words, in many cases in the Old Testament, actually purifies, actually makes things sweet, which were bitter for the sake of his people. But now he's doing that in reverse. He's taking what is already sweet, and he's making it bitter as a way of calling back to repentance. Yeah, yeah. And again, I, uh, just to emphasize what we said before, the there is both a there's a punishment here. Obviously, it seems very clear to us that this is a revelation of wrath and punishment. But it's also the revelation of the Lamb is on the throne, and it's we we have to worship Him and not the things that He made. Mm -hmm. So when these things don't have the power that they seem to have. By in and of themselves, we should be drawn to say, I, I should look to the lamb and I should pray to him to save me from the bitter waters or from the, the sea that isn't producing like it should or the land that is in famine and drought and is scorched up. Yeah. Well, I think with that, we'll go into our second break. So we'll be right back with more Word Fitly. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken. Welcome back to Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Zelwyn Heidi here today with David Appold, continuing our discussion on the book of Revelation and the seven trumpets. So, David, we left off with the third trumpet, and now we're going to be getting into the fourth. So I, I will read that quick, and then we'll talk about it. This is uh, chapter 8, verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. So what do we make of this, David? What's going on with this one? Well, if you if you remember what we were saying before, there is this pattern of um, the first four trumpets, just like the first four seals, are all very similar. Mm-hmm. We've gone through the earth, the sea, the rivers, and now we're going to talk about the things that fill the sky. So these trumpets affect every part of creation. 
Okay, the it is a little strange that you don't have the threefold separation, which is very common in the Old Testament, where you have the heavens, the earth, and the things beneath the earth. Mm-hmm. But here you you have four parts of creation: earth, sea, rivers, skies, um, or the heavenly heavenly realm. And um, every part of that, every part of creation is touched and affected by these trumpets and is um, becomes somehow, def- I don't, maybe this isn't a good word, but somehow defective. So the sun, the light that should be there is going to be taken away. Now, what do, what do we make of that? Think of everything that's dependent on light that's going to be affected when light is taken, taken away. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think that that a big part of this, I've said this in almost each one of the trumpets, is that God's power over the idols, God's power over his creation, um, and the things that men worship within creation, God is asserting, the Lamb of God is asserting his power to control these things. So the cult of the sun, the cult of the moon, the cult of the stars, these things pop up in various cultures in different times and places. And, um, you know, the lamb's power is shown sometimes through these things being destroyed or being limited. Sure. Well, and I think uh, the, the language of a third of the, of the light being darkened and likewise a third of the night, I, I'm, I guess I'm taking that as a reference to time, and the reason I'm I'm saying that is because I don't think we want to, I don't think we want to make this into some literalistic like God is going to shorten the day up to be what sixteen hours or something like that. You know that I don't think that's the point. I think the point here is that God is the master also of time, that He is the one who rules over the day, that He is the one who rules over the night, and time is as He pleases. So that you know our time in that sense is not unlimited. It's not something of which we have complete control over, but it is yet another idol of, you know, this thinking that we have control of our own time that is being thrown down. Um, In that sense, especially because then when we hear the eagle crying out, which we're going to get to here momentarily, you know, the the three woes which are about to happen, you know, time is running out. You know, this is hastening to its end kind of a thing. And so there is this call to repentance that goes with the notion that, you know, today is the the, the, the seasonable time. You know, now, <laughs> repent now kind of a thing. Don't put off until tomorrow because, you know, time is in God's hands. It's not in ours. In creation, the sun, moon, and stars are made to mark times and seasons, which fits with what you're saying. So um, it's not simply... Do I hear you right? It's not simply the um, shining of the light and everything mm-hmm. that the light brings, but it's also um, when the sun, moon, and stars are affected, it's those, the purpose that they were created for is also going to be affected, which is right. to mark out times and seasons. Yeah, right. I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, and especially because with the, the sun ruling over the day, that kind of a thing to mark the times and the seasons. And if and if his time is being shortened, you know, if his power is being affected, then yeah, I, I would see that as a a call to repent because the time is shortening. Which is why then I think we can transition very easily into the the eagle overhead crying out "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" But do you want to say anything else about this trumpet before we we go into the that transition? Uh, only to say that there is going to be a transition here, and and the <laughs> next the next two are are quite different. So the first four, if we can kind of sum up, the first four touch the natural world, the created order. And, you know, whether we're talking about different natural disasters or what we call natural disasters, different things that affect the created world that we might be able to say, oh, here's the explanation for it. You know, El Nino happened again this year. Uh, <laughs> and therefore we had a hurricane or, or whatever it might be, right? Um, right? Our explanations for things never really actually explain them. You know, you might, you might describe a little bit more why something happened, but um, it is a myth that we are actually able to explain how, how it is that things happen. Yeah, we, we are not the masters here. We are the creatures yeah. under the master. And now uh, we do have to 
put an important caveat in here that it, you know, hurricanes, are they actually man-made? Are there giant wind machines? I, I don't want to go into that without Willie being here. I think we need him. We need him to, you know, to talk about such matters. Well, and even and even if we want to delve into, you know, more spoopy things to talk about these things, even such things are not happening, you know, outside of God's sure. uh, control. You know, God is permitting such things as part of his power. Uh, that's a whole nother discussion, though. So we'll we'll get into that another time. So but let's look at the transition then. So verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So there's something about these upcoming trumpets then, this, the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh, that make them worse than the four that went before. So what what makes them worse before we dig into you know what's going on here? Yeah, I think what makes them worse, and especially with these first two trumpets that we're going to look at, it's clearer. There is what I'm going to say is more demonic activity. So the first four, you don't have much, there's not these other agents involved, right? There's a there's a burning mountain that falls into the sea. There's a star that has a name, Wormwood, but he, it just falls out of the sky into the rivers. The sun, the moon, the stars, they were darkened. You get that pass. It's almost, you know, what people call the divine passive on these verbs. Mm-hmm. But now in the fifth and sixth trumpet, there's a lot more detail given and there are more, I'm going to say, actors. There's more, and it's demon, the activity is demonic activity that's much more clearly seen in the fifth and the sixth trumpets. And then, of course, with the seventh itself in chapter 11 being, you know, the coming of Christ's dominion, that sort of thing. So, yeah, you could say that there is something a little bit more active about all of them even if five and six are a little bit more, like you say, demonic. Yeah, but, super, what I would say maybe here, supernatural. There, There's something, there's supernatural um, entities involved in the fifth and sixth trumpet that we didn't see in the first four. Sure. And um, is there any significance to it being an eagle? I mean, is, or, you know, what's, what's the idea there? Well, the eagle, of course, is the, is Rome. And, uh, <laughs> So somehow it has to do with the fall of Rome. I, I really don't know. You expect an angel, right? right. In other parts of Revelation, um, the angels are the ones who give the messages. This is the only place that I know of where um, it's not an angel. I'm just thinking really hard, really quickly here. Um, well, I like well, making you do that. So. Yeah, I know. I don't think there is a, another. I don't think there's another creature that talks except the dragon, which that's a that's a thing unto itself. Right. So this is unique in the book of Revelation, and what its uniqueness exactly is, I don't quite know. Um, the angels, may, maybe, this this is probably a stretch, Zelwyn, and, and you can um, quickly shoot it down, but the angels usually bring a message of, do the angels always bring a message of salvation, and the eagle gets a message of terror? <laughs> That's just a guess. I don't know if it actually works. I'm not sure. Although, because then the other thing that is kind of intriguing me here, it says that he flies overhead. And what I was trying to figure out real quick is where John is in, in the scheme of Revelation, whether he's in heaven or on earth at the moment. And it kind of would seem like, you know, that he is somewhere on earth if he's saying that it's overhead. But I, I can't prove that for sure, because, you know, it's it's interesting to follow where he is, because, you know, he starts on earth and then he goes up into heaven. Right. And then he goes back onto earth in a couple of places, then back up into heaven. You know, so there's always this kind of movement of where John is seeing things from. And maybe this is an indication that this eagle uh, he is seeing as being directly overhead of him if he's seeing things from the earth. You know, especially because when we see the, the fifth trumpet blowing his trumpet, for example, and he's seeing things that are happening on earth and not in heaven. So maybe maybe this is a way of saying that, you know, this is an earthly woe which is coming about. And that's why you know, the eagle is warning us so severely. Sure. sure. I don't know. I'm spitballing here. So <laughs> that's the theme of these, of the revelation episodes. Zelen is uh, revelation <laughs> spit posting. 
Amen to that. So let's look at uh, at least the fifth trumpet here, because I don't think we're going to get through the sixth at the rate we're going here. Yeah, sounds good. I'll, I'll, do you want to take the whole thing or do you want to read just a little bit well, of it? And then maybe, maybe we just summarize it because it okay. is long and I think right. it would get unwieldy. What happens in the fifth trumpet, the angel blows his trumpet. And instead of just seeing some part of creation be affected, now we do have an angel um, coming down. Okay. So a star fallen from heaven to earth. And here's what I'm, here's the difference between the Wormwood star. When Wormwood fell, there was no, he didn't do, that star didn't carry out any action, right? But here the star falls and this quote unquote star is given a key and he opens up the abyss and releases all this smoke. He releases something out of the abyss. So I'm going to take that to mean that we're talking about an not just a created star, but we're talking about an angel fallen mm-hmm. from, from heaven down to earth and he opens up the abyss. He uses this key and he releases this demonic force that comes out over the earth. Mm-hmm. And the, the demonic force, um, I call it demonic because it's coming out of the abyss. It seems pretty clear that we're not just talking about um, an earthly kingdom. We're not talking about a certain empire. We're talking about a hellish force. And so these demons are described as locusts and scorpions and they get a further description that is if we i I think it's good just to pause there and we'll get into the further description in in a little bit but i don't know if there's anything so far that you want to draw attention to zelwyn well i i do think you know because i know you're saying that wormwood was kind of maybe just just a star with a name it could also be that an angel here because um if you look at the the star who is falling from heaven to earth and given the key to open I mean, does does it seem as if he's just the one opening? Because, I mean, even when you have the the king of the bottomless pit, for example, you know, is should we identify that with the star? You know, is the star's name Abaddon or Apollyon, however you want to however you want to go with it? Or is it just he is the one who is releasing these things as you see in other things? Yeah, you see, um, that's a good point to make this. It's not necessarily that this star is a an evil age, an evil agent himself, you know, mm-hmm. that it's a fallen angel in the sense of a sinful angel, a, a demon. Mm-hmm. It could, it's, um, and you can see a similarity there in revelation 20. It's a good angel who actually opens up the abyss and, uh, has the, um, the devil by a chain, right? Mm-hmm. So God's good angels are sometimes, doing things that we would say, you know, maybe you shouldn't do that, mm-hmm. um, but but they don't <laughs> obey us. Right. So we might say, you know, don't open that. Don't use that key to open the abyss. That's going to hurt us. Um, mm-hmm. But in, in God's um, knowledge and in his purposes, um, he does allow a time, time and half a time, right. He does allow the evil forces um, to seem to have their way, but mm-hmm. he also sets a limit. So the classic example is in the book of Job, right? Um, God is the one who suggests to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Mm-hmm. And then he gives Satan power over Job, but he puts a limit over it. Only don't take his life. Mm-hmm. Well, now, of course, that all being said, you know, this still could be a demonic angel who's being permitted to do these things. I'm not saying that we have to, we have to identify him that way. I'm just saying, you know, I think you could read it as he's just the one who is opening the pit because the abyss itself is the place of the the demonic powers. I mean, even in the Gospels, when you have like the, the demons saying, you know, have you come to, you know, to torment us before the time? You know, no, I mean, eventually they end up going back into the abyss. You know, this is the domain of the demonic, the domain of where the, the evil spirits are. And for them to be opened in that sense, First of all, shows that they are under God's control, right? Which is what you were saying with Satan. You know, the fact that they were restrained until this time. But it also shows that now that this is going to be a period of something much more severe, demonically yeah. speaking. Yeah. And so the look at how they're described then. So they, they come out as locusts. That, so first smoke comes out of the abyss. So if you can picture this, a big pit being opened and out comes all this smoke. 
And then from the smoke come these locusts. And um, the locusts are given, it says, power like the power of a scorpion. Mm-hmm. And what that means is uh, is clarified a little bit more at the end of verse 6. In those days, people will seek death, but won't find it. Mm-hmm. So their power is to torture or to torment, but they don't actually kill. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, scorpion, a scorpion sting, I've never been stung by a scorpion. I'm sure some of them are deadly. But by and large, you don't die from being stung by a scorpion. Right. Okay, at least that's what's in, that's what the text says. Mm-hmm. Now, again, I'm sure there are deadly scorpions, but the point here is these demons have a certain amount of power and they torture and torment people, but not to the point of death. They make people wish that they were dead, but they don't actually kill. Well, and also I remember uh, the point being made once that the period of five months being the period of the, the dry season in, you know, periods and in parts of the world where, you know, you have a wet and a dry so that this would be as if you were caught in a tremendous drought, you know, that, that sense of like, you know, is it ever going to find relief? Are we ever going to find some kind of relief from this torment? So again, this, this over this strong emphasis on the torment, which the demonic brings with it, which I think, which is what you're driving at here. But these locusts also have there's more to them than just a locust-like appearance. You know, what else is there about them? Yeah, there's a whole list of what they look like, okay? And so you have a number of things mentioned here. They're, they were like horses prepared for battle. They had what looked like crowns of gold. Their face was like a human face. Their hair was like a woman's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. Their breastplates like iron and the noise of their wings like the noise of chariots and horses. I mean, if you tr- if you try to actually draw these things, they would be tremendously ugly, right? right. Um, but I think the I think the point of what John is saying is not to say it was it was that the demonic is ugly, but all of these things are actually masquerades of something attractive. Okay? So, um for instance, the the woman's hair is called her glory in scripture. So mm-hmm. the demons, even though, you know, when John sees them, they're these terrible creatures sm- coming out of the abyss with smoke and, you know, scorpion stings. They also have a, there is an, a, they, they masquerade um, as angels of light, like the devil is described in places. And mm-hmm. I think that that, that saves us from, it, it helps us to get a right understanding of demonic activity. It's not upfront and obvious. I mean, it could be, but it, it is also the case that the demons work through lies, just like the devil works through lies, and they cover themselves with power. They um, appeal to things that are attractive to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what, what John is describing here, I think we should understand to be that the demons will, uh, they will torment and afflict us, but at the same time, they will, um, deceive people into thinking this is, this is good stuff, right? Crowns of gold, they have power, they have authority, they have, um, rule. That's the crown. They have beauty. And, um, if we just go along with it, then it will, it will work out. Um, this is again one of the one of the the terrible um, tactics of the devil is that he doesn't come in obvious ways, but um, it's always through lies and deceit that he gains hold on someone, and only then um, does it become clear to a person that they're actually under some kind of satanic force. I, I think I think a lot of that is good. I think I would also point out here that, like with the crowns. Uh, we've had mention of crowns in the scriptures before, or in the revelation here before, especially with the elders uh, who are said to throw their crowns down before the lamb, you know, and worshiping mm-hmm. God in that way. The demons here are keeping their crowns on their heads, maybe as a way of showing that they imagine themselves to be in command here. You know, they are the ones who have the crown kind of a thing. And so, and also this, like you say, the idea of uh, human faces, that which appears attractive, that which appears natural, that which appears to us to be something good, but in reality isn't. And I, and again, that attractiveness as the women's hair, woman's hair, I think is also pointed. But I think the fact that their teeth are described as the teeth of a lion, 
is kind of like when we have the the lamb here in the, in a couple of chapters, you know, the, the second beast who's described as looking like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's significant because, you know, this deceptiveness and yet their words, what they're actually saying can't hide the fact of what they actually are. They are speaking lies. They are speaking evil. They are speaking against the most high. And even with their, their painted faces, even with their beautiful hair, so to speak, they can't hide the fact that they are demons. Yeah. What you're saying is the CGI always glitches. <laughs> and if you, if you notice the glitch, all of a sudden you realize the mat- you're in the matrix. Right? Exactly. Um, exactly. There are those little things that, um, that will be telling and revealing. I think you're right. Well, and, and maybe as a, as a way of closing this thought, too, because we're not going to get into the six. It just ain't happening today. Yeah, yeah. But as a way of closing this thought, this idea of speaking something so attractively, yet being so wicked and bringing with it tremendous suffering. I mean, do we not see that happening in our own age? You know, the, the, the world is buying into all of these ideas, all of these, you know, things which seem so attractive and which are presented in attractive ways. And yet we live in one of the most miserable ages in all of the world. <laughs> you know, yeah. how, how many people say that they are miserably depressed? You know what I mean? And they're, they're longing for death. And yet we're trying to say, oh, we have everything so good. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, we all, all the studies show that um, <laughs> social media actually furthers isolation, right? Right. But what were we told when, um, you know, we had two weeks to, to stop the curve? We were told just just use social media and you will, you know, you will um, find community there. But the studies all show that the more you use that stuff, the more depressed you get. So, I mean, if that's not a a good example of what we're describing, I don't know what is. Their power is in their in their tails. Uh, Up front, everything looks good. But um, the sting comes uh, behind. (laughs) So basically what you're telling me is Facebook is the fifth trumpet. I don't know. I we we have to post this on Facebook, so I'm not sure how much to say. And the king over over the the, the bottomless pit is the Zuck himself. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> on that note, cue the music. Cue the music. Yep yeah, we 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 need we need to to close it up. But any any par- parting thoughts before we we close for today? Uh, just to see these things again, um, the, to go back to what we said at the very beginning, whenever we're doing a Revelation episode, um, remember the Lamb is on the throne and these things do not happen apart from his power, apart from his control. Um, now, we might say, well, I wish that it would stop. How long, O oh Lord, how long the cry goes up? And the answer will be given, not forever, but just remember the Lamb is on the throne He's taking care of of these things, and uh, they're not told to us to dishearten us, but they're actually told to us to encourage us. See, I told you all these things beforehand. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard, please check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm your host, Selwyn Heidi, here today with David Apple. God love you, and God bless. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Revelation 9, 20 and 21.